Today's podcast is brought to you by the Ashbrook Center. The Ashbrook Center is an independent center at Ashland University that teaches students, teachers, and citizens what it means to be an American. Ashbrook's new book, 50 Core American Documents, tells America's story from the founding through the 20th century using original historical documents. Get your copy of Ashbrook's 50 Core American Documents today in the iTunes store or at 50docs.org. That's 50docs.org. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. This is Philip Terzian, Literary Editor of the Weekly Standard, with my weekly podcast on the books and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And this week we're talking about the issue dated December 8th, 2014, which also happens to be the holiday reading issue, which is uh, which means in uh, the quick and easy translation is that the books and arts section is uh, nothing but books and is um, twice the usual length and decide, designed to some degree uh, with the holiday gift shopper in mind. Um, but nevertheless, uh, the general uh, mission of the books and arts section remains the same, and so we begin with a book that has made uh, something of a splash both in England and the United States and seems um, eminently well-suited to Weekly Standard readers, and that is uh, Andrew Roberts's new biography of Napoleon entitled Napoleon, A Life. Andrew Roberts is a distinguished uh, British uh, historian and writer, um, uh, a... um, Uh, much-published, essentially biographer, but also historian, uh, mostly of the 20th century, but obviously in this case um, dealing with a subject from the uh, late 18th, early 19th century, and of course the, I guess, if you're a certain kind of Frenchman, the greatest Frenchman of the age, Napoleon. And with books like this, of course, the instinct uh, is to ask, uh, do we learn anything new in this book? and or um, is this a new and interesting way of looking at a subject that has been uh, treated many times? And I would say the answer to question A is yes, not a great deal. We don't, I mean, if you know something about Napoleon, you're not going to learn too much more, but but it does have some information um, hitherto unexplored. But I think the stronger answer is is part two, which is um, Andrew Roberts has a very interesting, uh, and I may say for an Englishman, surprisingly favorable take on his subject, um, and somewhat different from the usual uh, historical attitude about uh, uh, the emperor. So for those of you uh, with an interest in history, and uh, for anyone who wants to know something about one of the great names of of modern history, uh, and someone who's life um, affected uh, Europe in a way that is still being felt today, Napoleon, A Life by Andrew Roberts, which is reviewed for us by Dominic Green. Next, we have a review by David Skinner. David Skinner is a former editor here at the Weekly Standard, um, and the book he's reviewing uh, is an, is a novel entitled We Are Not Ourselves by Matthew Thomas from Simon & Schuster, which is a uh, sort of the great American novel type. It's a multi-generational novel about an Irish-American family in uh, Queens. Um, this was uh, first drawn to my attention by someone whose whose 
taste and judgment I respect saying it was the the great American <laughs> the great American novel of Queens. I don't know if we've been looking for one, but of course the various boroughs of New York have been subject for many a novelist. Queens, I imagine, is one of the boroughs perhaps less treated by most novelists who tend to concentrate on Manhattan and then uh, uh, Brooklyn probably comes in number two. But it's an interesting and, and a good novel. Um, for those of you who are New Yorkers, who have any connection to New York, um, or who know New Yorkers, or know New York, period, uh, it sounds like a, a, a very good read. Um, and if nothing else, David Skinner's fine review will give you a, a very good overview of the novel and help you decide whether you want to get it or not. Next, uh, Benjamin Belint, who's a uh, writer in uh, lives in Jeru- an Israeli writer lives in Jerusalem, um, is um, reviewing a book by Carol Backhouse published by Harvard. The title is "The Family of Abraham: Jewish, Christian, and Muslim Interpretations." Um, we often hear, especially nowadays, about the um, Abrahamic tradition that all the people who profess to be uh, Jews, Christians, and Muslims are all essentially uh, defe- de- de- descended from uh, the tradition begun by Abraham. And th- the point of this book is that that's a, a bit of a misconstruction, that all three traditions um, tend to look at, at the historical, or at any rate, the biblical Abraham a little differently. The 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 stories, the point of view, the attitude, the conclusions are all a little different, and um, this, of course, has an obvious implications for modern politics, but it's one of those cases where um, a a theological and uh, historical question from very early antiquity um, has a resonance in our own day. Sounds like a fascinating book, and I say that as one, I confess, who's not terribly interested in biblical history, um, uh, but obviously uh, um, biblical literacy is all part of being a a cultivated person. Um, And I found this um, a very interesting book, uh, just on its own merits. Next, we have a review by our own Terry Eastland, um, who is, I guess, to some degree, our resident legal and constitutional Expert, but the book is uh, entitled Liberty and Union, A Constitutional History of the United States by Edgar J. McManus and Tara Helfman. McManus and Helfman are both law professors, and this is a concise edition, which is to say an abridged edition of their two-volume version of this book. But what they have done, it's a wonderful idea. Um, They've taken the United States Constitution and piece by piece have described it Um, by illustrating it through um, not only the cases that have made constitutional history before the court, but American history. So in the long sweep of American history, they use examples from our national story to illustrate um, the substance of our national uh, constitution. Um, Terry Eastland tells us it's very well done. It's not a it's not a book um, with a, a point of view. It tries to examine all these issues from a scholarly, dispassionate standpoint. And it's a, a wonderful gift, I think, for anyone who uh, has a, a student in mind, especially a student who 
might be contemplating a career in in law or something related to law or is interested in politics or is just plain interested in the history of the United States or here's people sort of loosely talking about the Constitution. Well, this tells us exactly what the Constitution is and what it has meant in the 200-and-some-year history of our country. For that, I have a, we have a piece by Peter Tonget of a kind of amusing book called American Cornball, A Laughopedic Guide to the Formerly Funny by Christopher Miller. This is from Harper, and it's an account of the American comic sensibility, largely as it um, uh, is... Uh, uh, manifest in film, but it's the American comic sensibility as it was in the past. Um, I suppose all of us have had the experience of looking at uh, comedies from uh, the 1920s or the screwball comedies of the 30s or Doris Day, Rock Hudson comedies of the 50s or Woody Allen comedies from the 1970s and have asked themselves, what was so funny about that? Um, this book partly answers that question, but it also makes the point that uh, obviously humor changes and what we regard, what Americans especially regard as being funny, evolves over time. Although obviously there are cases where um, uh, scenes and ideas and plots and films and plays and whatnot that uh, were first produced in 1910 can still make us laugh today, whereas sometimes something that was regarded as hilariously funny in 1980 is um, today um, not regarded as uh, being so uh, 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 humorous at all for various reasons, um, whether political correctness or just, just humor just goes out of fashion. Next, we have a review um, by the distinguished British historian J.J. Scarisbrick of a book from Oxford University Press by Jesse Childs entitled God's Traitors, Terror and Faith in Elizabethan England. Um, the, the transition in England between Roman Catholicism and the Church of England, of course, was a long one, uh, beginning in the early uh, 16th century, uh, and really didn't end the, the, the process, I should say, of England becoming a Protestant land, really didn't end until the reign of um, Queen Elizabeth, which was um, much later in the century. And, of course, it was kind of, one might say, finalized by her successor, James I, for whom the King James Version of the Bible is named. But the, all the great, um, one might say, founding documents of Anglicanism date from the from the uh, Elizabethan era, in effect, the Book of Common Prayer and so on. And, or I should say, the, uh, the mid-17th century. Um, and uh, Elizabeth's reign, which she came to the throne in, what, 1558, um, uh, that became the... Dear me, I hope I didn't say 17th century. I meant 16th century. Anyway, Elizabeth came to the throne in the middle of the 16th century. And what we think of today as Anglicanism, or the Church of England, um, really was institutionalized at that point. But part of the process, too, meant that those Englishmen and women who uh, stuck with the old faith, namely Roman Catholicism, were increasingly marginalized. And by the time of Elizabeth's reign, of course, this being the great period of religious wars in Europe, it was positively dangerous to be a Catholic. You, you, could, 
you were relatively unmolested, but you couldn't attend universities, you couldn't hold public office, you couldn't do this, you couldn't do that. And of course, the presence of priests in the land was was um, uh, not allowed. And and concurrently, there were uh, plots, Catholic plots against the Protestant throne, most famously uh, the Guy Fawkes um, uh, conspiracy. Um, but the... Uh, uh, the book is largely about Catholic recusants, that is to say, Catholics who who refused to become Protestants, what life was like for them in Elizabethan England, and it was not easy. That is followed by a, a review by our film reviewer, John Podhoritz, of a new biography of Bob Hope, entitled Hope, Entertainer of the Century. John's Argument to some degree is that the author Richard Zoglin, um, uh, t- to some degree, overstates Hope's influence on um, American uh, entertainment, show business, comedy, movies, whatever you want to say. That he was a he was a kind of ubiquitous presence. He was a domineering presence, um, but not all that influential. He was in himself a kind of unique figure. But a few of his movies have lasted, and his, even though one might argue that he invented stand-up comedy, um, his his comedy has not worn all that well. Not that we're offended by it, but we just don't find it all that. Once again, we ask ourselves, what was so funny about that? But of course, he also reinvented himself as a kind of national institution, beginning in Second World War. Of course, he famously visited the troops in Europe and the Pacific and uh, later in Korea and then in Vietnam and uh, was an indefatigable entertainer of uh, armed forces in very difficult, under very difficult circumstances. And he became a confidant of presidents, a kind of um, entertainer general of the United States. I guess I would, I guess I would summarize John Pontoritz's attitude with his last paragraph where he says that hope had, quote, transcended comedy. He was the nation's designated mood lifter, according to the author Zoglin. Here's what John says. It's not nothing to lift a nation's mood. Far from it. And Bob Hope earned every dollar he made. But by definition, mood is a fleeting thing. Bob Hope was not the entertainer of the century. He was, at best, its master of ceremonies. Well, of course, Bob Hope's life also lasted a little over a century. So, if you were alive at any time in the 20th century and have memories fond or otherwise of Bob Hope, this would be a book of interest. That is followed then by a piece by James Gardner, who often writes for us about art, about a, a very interesting book entitled Rendezvous with Art by Philippe de Montebello and Martin Gayford. Martin Gayford is a uh, art historian, someone who writes about art for a living, a former art critic of the London Spectator Philip de Montebello is the um, uh, former director, longtime director, but now um, retired of the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And this is just a series of, um, in effect, dialogues between these two men uh, on the subject of art. They talk about different things. They visit places jointly. And it sounds like a, an immensely charming uh, volume. It's done in a kind of conversational style. They 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 treat art high and low, but you, you get a chance to eavesdrop on two uh, exceedingly erudite and experienced men of the world, men of the art world, as they confront 
art as we see it as well. And um, I found it a, a quite fascinating read. And our reviewer, James Gardner, feels the same way. Rendezvous with Art by Philippe de Montebello and Martin Gayford. Alec Rogers has reviewed a new book um, entitled The Return of George Washington, 1783-1789 by Edward Larson, which talks about that um, interval in Washington's career between the Revolution and the Constitutional Convention. Of course, after the British surrender uh, and the Treaty of uh, Paris, George Washington uh, essentially retired to Mount Vernon and remained there throughout the period of the Articles of Confederation and basically um, did not participate in public life in any, certainly in any official capacity. And this book asks the question, what was he doing during that time and why, when the Constitutional Convention was assembled in 1787, did the uh, founders find it necessary to import George Washington to Philadelphia to preside over the Constitution. And once the Constitution was, of course, uh, drafted and ratified, a long uh, process in itself, obviously, why was George Washington the, in effect, unanimous choice to be our first um, uh, chief magistrate? It's an interesting book because it, 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 it combines both an examination of what Washington was doing during this transition period when he was like Cincinnatus, had returned to the plow after winning the revolution, um, but also what was Washington thinking? I mean, behind the disinterested statesman, was there an ambitious man, and how did it manifest, it, manifest itself? That is followed by a uh, fiction review by Suzanne Klingenstein, and it's a... It's, <laughs> It's a interesting comic novel um, by a novelist named Julie Schumacher entitled Dear Committee Members, published by Doubleday. I gave this to Suzanne Klingenstein for two reasons. One is she's um, uh, a writer uh, with a um, um, who teaches at Harvard, although is not, I think, on the formally on the Harvard faculty. I think she teaches in a writing program at Harvard, and she is also uh, German by birth. So I wanted someone who was looking at American um, academia f f from both the inside and the outside, and Suzanne Klingenstein in that way, I thought, filled the bill. The novel is very funny. It's, it's an epistolary novel, um, entirely in the form of um, from one professor in the form of letters of recommendation, which, of course, are one of the great uh, documents of our time, how people um, advance careers, how people deal with the problem of what to do with people they've um, dealt with. Um, and this is all done in a very humorous way. It involves, of course, the current quirks and eccentricities and outrages of academic politics. But it's done very skillfully, and of course the idea of doing it all in the form of letters is an old idea in fiction, but not much um, not much used today, but used very skillfully here. Um, the next book is um, reviewed by Kyle Peterson, who's a Washington journalist, but the book is um, by William Vogley, who is um, the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, well-respected um, uh, uh, quarterly um, book review. 
published at, at the Claremont Colleges in California, and the book is entitled um, The Pity Party, A Mean-Spirited Diatribe Against Liberal Compassion. Um, obviously, the the uh, title is um, probably was um, suggested by the publisher rather than the author, but this is a kind of interesting and very engaging examination of modern liberalism, of how um, it has kind of devolved from a set of principles and beliefs into a series of feelings and emotions that are uh, uh, that have to be fed and cultivated and nourished and which uh, sometimes have political appeal and sometimes do not and one wonders whether they, there's much of a future for it in that form but William Vogley's um, examination of it is both both learned and voluminous and very amusing and um, very skillfully done. And uh, as I read uh, Kyle Peterson's uh, review, um, he shares my opinion. And I think anyone who wants to look at the present state of American liberalism from both a, if I may say, a, 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 a partisan standpoint, um, but also a deeply scholarly one, let me uh, uh, recommend the Pity Party by William Vogley. Our last piece is by John Breen, who writes about um, uh, detective fiction, uh, murder mysteries for us. And uh, he, what he is reviewing is a novel by Lee Child entitled Personal, published by Delacorte. And Personal is, I think, the fifth, maybe the fourth novel in a series by Lee Child uh, that um, involves a uh, detective named Jack Reacher. Uh, Tom Cruise played Jack Reacher in a, a movie entitled Jack Reacher a couple of years ago. Uh, Personal I, uh, is the um, is the I think the fifth in the series. And for those of you looking for um, a good mystery or a good murder novel or a good uh, crime procedural. John Breen is an astute judge of these things, and he recommends not only Personal, the latest in the installment in the series, but the whole Jack Reacher series uh, with unreserved enthusiasm. So as I say, if you have a, if you have a, a, a mystery-loving um, uh, reader on your gift list, this is our recommendation for this holiday. So I thank you very much for taking this uh, extra time to talk about this extra lengthy um, section of the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. I say lengthy advisedly. It's lengthy in a good way, I hope. And I hope also to talk to you a week from now about our next issue. Until the meantime, thanks so much for listening.